The scripture reading today is from Luke 13, verses 1 to 9. It's found on page 619 and 1620 in your Bible. This is the word of God. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Then he told them a parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years I've been coming to look for fruit, for fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, Fine. If not, cut it down. So far the reading of the Word of God. Thank you, Richard. That last part with that parable there sounds like my garden. (laughs) You've got six big Tomato plants are this high and there's only five tomatoes on all of them. Tomatoes, yeah, not potatoes. Anyway, there's a deep lesson there though. We'll look at that in a minute. But before we begin, let's, let's just quiet our hearts in a time of silent prayer. Amen. Whenever there's a natural disaster, a tragic accident, or human violence against innocent people, we often react with questions. Questions like, why? Why do innocent people suffer? Why do these kinds of things happen? We look to find Who's responsible for this? What's responsible? So we can blame someone. We can blame something. It seems like one of the ways we try to make sense of senseless tragedy is to fix responsibility somewhere. 
And in our scripture that Richard just read from the Gospel of Luke, someone in the crowd that Jesus is addressing call out and tell him of an evil and heartbreaking event that happened in Jerusalem. And apparently they want his opinion on this horrifying tragedy where the soldiers of the Roman governor of Palestine, Pontius Pilate, went into the Jewish temple and slaughtered people who were offering sacrifices to God in worship. It would be like if we were celebrating Holy Communion and U.S. Army Rangers came in and randomly shot into the congregation and our blood was mixed with the juice of the Lord's Supper. Those in the crowd, they want to know what Jesus thinks of this, what he has to say about this incident. Maybe, maybe they hope he'll make some inflammatory anti-Roman comments, stir the people up to take action. Or maybe they want a theological opinion. They want a theological discussion. They want to know, is the judgment of God falling upon these people? But what's interesting is Jesus does not respond in any of these ways. He doesn't seem interested in these particular kinds of questions. He doesn't get into any theological issues surrounding the problem of evil and the goodness of God. He doesn't issue an outrage call to revolt against the Romans. He doesn't call for an investigation into the causes of this tragic event and, or publish a report with steps for how to prevent this from happening. Those would all be valid responses, but Jesus' response is more personal, more direct. He states that life on earth is dangerous. And it is brief. And we all need to be ready to die. Centuries ago, it was the custom in English villages to ring the church bell when any member of the church lay at the point of death. It was called the passing bell. And as mournful tones echoed through the village, people naturally wondered, well, well, who is it that's about to die? And the poet, John Doney, wrote a poem, and he answers that question, and he says, Send not to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. It tolls for you. And this is the message Jesus conveys to those asking the question, Why? What about this evil? His answer is, be prepared for death. Your death. As we have seen consistently in his interactions with the crowd, Jesus gives another warning. And while this response may kind of surprise us, it is a warning. Jesus begins by drawing a lesson from the tragedy in the first five verses. When presented with the problem of this evil, Jesus goes right to the idea of people getting what they deserve. Verse 2, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? You see, in the Jewish religion, especially at that time, 
If something evil happens to you, the automatic conclusion is that it's because of your personal sin. You did something to deserve this. So the implication with these worshipers in the temple, they're murdered because somehow they're worse sinners than the rest. There's this rigid connection between sin and suffering. Remember the story of Job, the man who loses everything. He loses his family, his health, his wealth, and his friends come around him and they accuse him of having done something wrong. What did you do to bring this suffering upon yourself? But Jesus challenges this kind of thinking. Even in the story of Job, his friends are rebuked by God for misinterpreting his suffering. And those people in the temple who are murdered while they're actually worshiping, they're doing the right thing. They're obeying God at the very time that they're tragically killed. I thought of those people in Texas who were worshiping in church on a Sunday morning and a gunman came and and shot the place up and killed people. And those people were right where they were supposed to be on a Sunday morning, on the Lord's Day. Well, of course, we all know what happens to Jesus, who is the morally perfect Son of God, the best person in history, experiences the worst fate. So the people in our story, they're asking the wrong question. Jesus emphatically, he says, no, they're not greater sinners. And to even emphasize the point, he reminds them of another incident, this time an accident where a tower fell on construction workers in Jerusalem and 18 people were killed. Jesus asked, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Again, he answers his own question. No. No. For Jesus, the issue is we are all going to die. We are all living on borrowed time. The question is not how can a loving God allow evil? Or does God really care about us? Does he really love us? Or is he really sovereign and just and good because of all the random evil in this world? You know, we can speculate and argue about the problem of evil, but the scriptures tell us that we see in part and we see as in a mirror dimly. And that we live by faith, not by sight. Jesus warns that there's a greater tragedy than what happens by random violence or accidents. And that is not being ready to die. Not being ready when it's your time to face your Creator. The way he expresses this greater tragedy is, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Death can come at any time for anyone. The greater tragedy is not being prepared. 
Jesus knows there's an afterlife. He knows there's a heaven. He knows that there's a hell. He knows what happens to human beings after they die. And he knows that unless we repent, repent of our sin and our guilt before a holy God, we will eternally perish. So this is the point that Jesus wants to make. The necessity of repentance. And he says it twice in verse 3 and verse 5. I tell you, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Repentance literally means to change your mind, to change your direction, to change your life. And there's three reasons why we need to repent that we need to reverse the directions of our hearts and our lives. One is, and you know that you know all of these, we're all sinners. We stand under judgment. Repenting is what sinners need to do. If I make a mistake, I need to apologize and I need to correct it. But there's no real blame in that. When we sin, when we offend the holiness of God, we need to repent. We mean to, to confess our fault, acknowledge our guilt, turn away from our wrong, and do what's right. The underlying assumption with this warning is we all have to repent. Jesus knows us for what we are. He knows what's in our hearts. You know, we think of ourselves as basically good, kind, generous people, or at least we pretend to be. But Jesus knows that alongside any goodness in us, there's a selfish love. And it makes us even prone to hate God and hate other people because they compete with our self-interest. We may be willing to admit, yeah, I'm something less than perfect. I have weaknesses. I might own up to my bad choices. But Jesus says we have to do something more. We have to repent, not merely apologize, not make excuses or correct a minor, minor mistake. He says, no, you need to repent. Repentance is a necessity because each of us is a fallen sinner with a corrupted soul and we stand guilty before God. Secondly, repentance is necessary because unrepented sin is unforgiven sin. Unless you repent, you too will perish. Each of us face our personal sin every day. We battle it, it tempts us, but most of us try to deal with it on our own. The commonest way we do that is to ignore it. Or we may make light of it. We may minimize our sin. It's not that bad. It's not all that serious. Let's not blow this out of proportion. It's just a bad habit. It's just a fault. I need to work on it. <clears throat> or we normalize our sin. 
Everybody does it. I'm no different than anyone, and I can't help it. That's the way I am. We rationalize. But there is really only one way to finally deal with sin, to remove its guilt and break its power. And that is to repent. And this is the way of repentance. There is no other way. We cannot find forgiveness unless we repent. Turn in sorrow from our sins back towards the Lord. God's grace and forgiveness is not available to us unless we admit our need and repent. Jesus can and will cleanse and save us and forgive us, but on one condition, we turn from our sin and turn to Him. And thirdly, repentance is necessary because unforgiven sin destroys us. It destroys us. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. You will come undone. Unforgiven and unrepentant sin is destructive. Sin destroys us in many ways. It destroys us as individuals. It destroys our relationships. It, it, it brings down nations. <clears throat> and we're not just talking here, <clears throat> excuse me, about the obvious sins like murder or adultery, but about the things those sins that linger and eat away at us like a cancer. Things like hatred and bitterness and resentment and pride. Unbelief and a lack of trust. Idolatry and deception. Lust and greed and bitterness and jealousy. In a sense, we could say that all the tragedies in this world are just variations played out on one single theme the destructive nature of sin. Jesus is not just talking here, though, about psychological or physical destruction. Ultimately, he's warning us of the final destruction of eternal death. The final damage that sin does, all the damage, excuse me, that we experience in daily life, that sin brings upon us, is simply a sign and a warning of a more terrible destruction. And that is an eternity separated from our Creator. Repentance is not just a one-time thing. The Christian life begins with faith and repentance, and the Christian life continues with faith and repentance. Genuine life, genuine life-changing repentance begins with confession. Confession is where the mind agrees with God. It's saying to God, you're right, I'm wrong, this, is, this behavior, this attitude is, is unacceptable. Repentance begins with changing our minds. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
And this leads then to our mouth. Repentance then confesses that we're wrong and that there's evil in our hearts. We confess our guilt. And we do it without making excuses. Can you confess your sin without using the word but? But they deserved it. But I had a bad childhood. But I didn't know any better. But I tried my... No buts. True repentance and confession makes no excuses, shifts no blame. Repentance involves contrition. This is our emotions, our expressions. Contrition is, contrition is not to hate ourselves. Contrition is to hate our sin. Repentance feels sorrow and grief, not just for being caught or for the consequences, but grieves that we offend our Lord. It grieves that we are sinners and disobedient and idolaters. And then there is change. Repentance is confession and contrition, and then it is change. That's ultimately what repentance is. A change of mind, a change of heart, a change of action, of lifestyle. This is our will. We become willing to learn and grow and to be different. We want our futures to look differently. And by the grace of God, we go in a new direction following Jesus with new attitudes and new ways of thinking, with humility, making amends, with hope and love and faith. Repentance, friends, becomes a way of life. That's how we follow Jesus. That's how we become like Him. Now Jesus brings all of this together, as He often does with a story, with a parable. The parable of the fruitless fig tree. Now His point here is, now is the time. Now, today, is the day to repent. This is the day to do something. To turn away from your sin. To embrace forgiveness. And to live in God's grace. The fig tree is given an extra year. Three years is the expected time for a fig tree to produce fruit. Someone else has also pointed out that three years is the length of the ministry of Jesus. And he's coming to the end of his ministry. Time is up. The owner, he wants to cut down the tree, but the gardener advocates for another year. Let's give it another chance. Give it another, give it some more time. This is a delay in judgment. And this is what God does. He graciously allows an extension of time. We are like that tree. God is looking for the fruit in our lives, the fruit of repentance, the fruitless life of a person or of a church, of leadership. It's going to be judged. But God gives a season of opportunity. The Lord gives a second chance. He gives us time to repent. 
The Apostle Paul wrote, Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You know, God has every right to destroy humankind. He has every right to, to judge us and wipe us out. He did it once with the flood. That's really the question. We ask, why does God allow evil and suffering? But the real question is, why does He allow us to exist? Why does He allow us to go on? Well, Jesus here is saying, someday it's going to end. And there's an urgency here. He's talking, he's talking to a crowd of basically religious people. These are not notorious prisoners that killed somebody or terrorists or drug dealers. He's talking to people like you and me. Sometimes religious people can be the most blind to their unbelief and the greatest procrastinators to repent. Friends, the thrust of the message this morning from Jesus as we are living on borrowed time. Everyone's life comes to an end. And history is going to come to an end. And we won't get to choose how and when that happens. The greatest tragedy is not a terrorist attack or a car accident or a devastating flood. The greatest tragedy in life is to die without repenting because the implications are eternal. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus is speaking to me and he is speaking to you this morning. We each have to decide if we believe that Jesus knows what he's talking about. If you believe he's telling the truth, then what is the next step for you? What is the next step for you? Where is there a need for repentance? Friends, don't delay. For the present moment is the time. Today is the day to change our minds, our hearts, and turn our direction towards God. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we ask that you show us our need. That you shine the light of your truth into our hearts. Not that we be crushed, but that we would turn to you. Show us where we are failing to trust you. The places of unbelief. Show us the idols that we treasure the selfishness, the pride, the immorality and the impurities, the jealousy and resentments, even the hatred, the envy, the compulsions and the deceptions. And lead us, Father, to a position of confession where we will take that first step and say, there's things in my life that I don't have control over. And they're not good. 
And Lord, I need you. I confess where I am wrong, where I am going the wrong direction, and that I need Jesus. And Jesus, you said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we know you were speaking of grieving our sin. May we grieve our personal sin and grieve the sin of others and the sin of our nation and of the nations of the world. And Lord, may we turn to you and change. We can't do it on our own, Father. We need the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would help us change the direction to follow the compass of your word and your spirit. And that we may find freedom and forgiveness and grace. And may all of this change be to your glory and fulfill your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.